You're listening to the City World Radio Network. High-definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world. www.cityworldradio.com Good afternoon. Welcome to Intelligent Talk with Ralph McElvenny. Join us every Thursday at 5 p.m. on the City World Radio Network as we discuss topics in politics, art, and current events. So, uh, welcome to Intelligent Talk. We're very happy to have... uh, Jack Garcia, who was an undercover special agent for the FBI. He wrote the excellent book, Becoming um, Jack Falcone. And um, Mr. Garcia spent almost 30 years in the FBI. I've gotten to know him a little bit off the air as well. He's a very nice person, very interesting. And um, Jack, thank you so much for coming on the program today. Well, thank you for having me, Ralph. Really appreciate it. Thank you. So just to um, get into the story a little bit, for people who are not familiar with it, you joined the FBI, I think, in what, 1980? Is that about right? Yes. It was in 1980, and uh, I was in college. When I was in college, I really didn't have a, uh, uh, any kind of idea what I was going to do. I was playing football. That kind of was not my only interest. And uh, we went to see the movie Serpico and with Al Pacino, and that kind of the bug that I wanted to get into law enforcement. So right after college, I applied. I found out I couldn't get in. The reason being I wasn't an American citizen, so I quickly became one. And then in 1980, I was appointed uh, as a special agent to the FBI. And then you found you had a knack for undercover operations. Is that right, Jack? Well, you know, the movie Serpico shows Al Pacino doing undercover and that always interests me as far as him fighting corruption. But when you go down to Quantico, which is where our training is uh, uh, conducted for 16 weeks, you kind of get, you know, uh, you kind of, not to say the word brainwashed, but this is kind of what you want to be. You want to be up in symbol as junior. So I wanted, when I came out of there, I wasn't really thinking about doing undercover work. I was more inclined to do the traditional FBI type of work, which was, of course, at that time, for bank robberies, fugitives, and that's what I started doing. So it wasn't until, like, 1982, two years into the job, that they needed uh, somebody to, uh, who spoke Spanish to be involved in uh, some national security investigation as well as terrorist investigations. Now, keep in mind the time frame. If this is 1980, 82, the Bureau, after uh, J. Edgar Hoover died in 72, didn't really represent uh, the demographics in our society. So when they were looking for someone to infiltrate a particular group, they looked around and saw guys, you know, in three-piece suit and wingtip shoes, and uh, they really knew that they could do the work. So, of course, I was... Uh, I looked different, so to speak, and uh, uh, I went in it, and once I, uh, I got involved in Undercover, I got the bug. I mean, this is uh, what I thought was my calling, and uh, I really enjoyed it uh, doing 24 of my 26 years 
of service solely dedicated to doing undercover work. Some of your notable operations before, obviously, the mafia thing was you were doing uh, drug deals in Philadelphia, right? Do, uh, dealing as a drug dealer and nabbing people on that, corrupt cops in Florida um, who were involved in the drug trade, transporting drugs, things like that. And, and your national security, as you said as well. That is correct. You know, Ralph, because I spoke Spanish, you know, and I'm a native speaker, having been born in Cuba, and I came to this country when I was nine years old as a political refugee. Um, it was something that was kind of a knack for me. And keep in mind that the Bureau started working narcotics in 1982-83. So they really, uh, you know, we started working it along with DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration. So it was like a national shoe-in for me to get involved in working narcotics. And I've worked all types of undercover investigations with the Cali cartel, the Medellin and of course the Mexican uh, cartels, and I worked either as a buyer, a transporter, a guy who had a warehouse for it, and I did the whole gamut of working narcotics. I mean, I was blessed to have worked in New York, and we were assigned to the Queen's office where pretty much Little Cali was up in the Jackson Heights, uh, Queens area. So there was so much work to do, and especially back in the 80s. So. Uh, for me, it was probably one of the best times that I've had in my bureau career. I mean, we really did some great work. Some really bad people went to jail. And along the way, we were able to seize a lot of dope off the street as well as seize a lot of their money. That's excellent. And then, as I understand it, you sort of, the entree into the mafia, which I believe it was the Gambino crime family, correct, is what you infiltrated? That is correct. And yes. it's, it started off, there was a strip club in Queens, I believe, that was being bothered by Albanians, and you sort of got involved as sort of with the strip club, and that's how you met, is that is that correct, basically how you got involved with them? Yes, it, it was kind of, I, I never worked organized crime, and I think pretty much was because I spoke Spanish, and my expertise was working, uh, you know, narcotics matters or police corruption cases or murder for hires. And what had happened along the path, I crossed with an agent. His name was Nat Parisi, who uh, I had worked a dope case for him, actually with Russians. And he said to me, he says, look, we have a situation up in the Bronx where a strip clock is being shaken down by the Albanian mafia, which uh, at that time, it was they referred to themselves as the corporation, as well as some of the Gambinos. So we're looking for a guy with experience in undercover work to go in and start working in this undercover, as an undercover in this strip joint. So I told him that he had me on in the word strip club. So uh, <laughs> I quickly started working the investigation and uh, uh, it was the fact that some Albanians were coming in demanding um, security uh, money. They demanded protection for the club, but the owner was not willing to do that he you know he had a very tough bunch of guys who were the bouncers so these guys just started multiplying in numbers every week until one day they went in and started beating up customers robbing uh the place and smacking everything around it and finally there was a gun that went off and everybody ran out and then the next day out of the clear this gambino made guy soldier walks in with his alligator shoes and Brioni suit, and he tells the owner that, hey, I heard you guys had a problem 
or we can make that problem go away, but you're going to have to pay us protection. So they decided to bring me in as a partner into the club, and I paid off the Gambinos to ensure that the Albanians never returned and never uh, caused any problems at the strip club. Got it. And you sort of went, they had a, a training school for you at the FBI to sort of understand the mob a little bit, correct? Where you learn about a diamond. You, you pose as a, as a jeweler, correct? Which is what Joe Pistone did as well, I think, when he infiltrated the mob in the 70s. That is true. It was kind of like the same uh, type of uh, uh, background that we both created, you know, and uh, I followed suit in it. I don't know whether it's because they felt that, hey, it worked one time, you know, they will never suspect that it'll work again. But it, it was a situation that we called it the mob school because having not worked any type of organized crime, I mean, I only grew up in the Bronx, so I, I saw it around me as I was growing up, but I had to learn the, uh, the dynamics of it. I had to learn what it was all about. So I made sure that I would not make a mistake there. And it was a lot that I learned. And not only that, they wanted me, and keep in mind that I was, born in Cuba in Havana, that I had to pose as an Italian. I was going to pose as a third-generation Sicilian, so they wanted me to kind of understand some of the lingos, also create some of my background so it would be believable by these guys. So it was kind of really an interesting school. I mean, I felt I learned not only having the opportunities of talking to former monsters who were in the witness protection program or mobsters that were out there in the streets, along with very experienced FBI agents that have worked organized crime for many years, and their stories became my stories. And this is kind of how I learned, so I made sure that I wouldn't get in any kind of trouble. And Ralph, I want to state that it's a whole different type of work when you work traditional organized crime than you do with narcotics. And narcotics or all the other many investigations that I worked throughout my career, I was always the guy in charge out there in the street. These people believe whatever story I was telling them, I came off as a drug dealer, a hitman, whatever the case may be. But when you work organized crime, it's a whole different world altogether in which you have to show deference to these individuals. If they tell you that, and this happened to me uh, at times when you could look out your window and see a beautiful sunny sky like today, but the guy you're working with says, calls you up and says, hey, it's going to rain, bring the umbrella, and you're looking at this as it's not a chance in hell that it's going to rain. But when you get there, you better have an umbrella. And the reason for that is because he said that it was going to rain. And that's kind of how they work. So I had to swallow a lot of my pride. I had to, you know swallow my, I guess, lack of my machismo or, and, and play by these rules because they're very important if you want to be around these guys. This is what they grow up to. It's just like the movie Goodfellas when Henry Hill says when he's a little kid, I always wanted to grow up to be a gangster. Right. Well, you could see that people aspire to that, and, but there are rules that you got to play in order to be around them. Well, that's right. You, you write in the book about having to basically be 
Greg De Palma, the person in the family you became, I believe, closest to. You were like his driver. He's basically his best friend, the person who would do whatever he wanted, and the person you were closest to in the family. Just as a, as a side note, what's interesting is that the, the FBI, as I understand it, under Hoover, really didn't penetrate the mafia very much. People had their various theories as to why that was the case, but the FBI didn't really have much of a focus on the mob on, until really um, f- f- into the 60s. I mean, after, after Hoover's term, he was there for almost, I think, 48 years, was mostly passed. I mean, is that correct? Yeah, well, that is true. I mean, Hoover was more concerned about national security. Uh, you know, he was uh, more involved, I guess, with that and... Uh, I know that as far as, I think he recognized the existence of organized crime in America uh, as a result of the Appalachian meeting. That's where all the mobsters were somehow went up in upstate New York in this little community while they were driving their big Lincoln Continentals and Cadillacs and walked into these little stores dressed in their alligator shoes and and, uh, Brioni and Mania suits. And that's I think because of that, they, he started more realizing that, hey, there is a criminal problem. He kind of looked at them more as a gang. But then I guess he realized that they were indeed more organized, and then we went full-scale war attack on them. And that's kind of what we've been nonstop since the FBI started working organized crime, and we've had so much success uh, in taking down uh, families and and really dismantling and disrupting uh, organized crime in the U.S. So ju- just to like take us inside the family, when you were working for, uh, not working, but you were associated with the family for the FBI, it was a time of like a lot of great meals and getting manicures and some violence. And I, I assume there was interesting conversation, a lot of jokes. I mean, was it kind of a, was it an entertaining life being, being involved in that life, Jack? Well, it's cer- you know what? It certainly is. It's kind of one where, you know, it, like the one is depicted in the movies. You know, there's always guys out there, and uh, you go out uh, out on the town. It's always either they come around their card games, you go out to dinner, you bust each other's balls all day long. I don't know if I could say it, but I said That's it. That's okay, yeah. Uh, and they're, they really wind up just having, there's a lot of uh, being around each other, that camaraderie that you see with them or all. But at the same time, when I was out there, I would sit back a little and watch the dynamics of it and say to yourself, you know, it's kind of, a, there's so much treachery in this life. And these guys that purport to love one another and to be part of this secret criminal society could be called upon to kill any of their best friends. Because usually the person who sets the guy on the kill is the best friend. So you, it's kind of funny the way they work. And they do love going out. And it's a whole life. And... What happens, it's a whole subculture that really is fascinating. I mean, we used to be at the club, and you had these guys, we kind of referred to them as Klingons, you know, that would come in and would say, hey, Jackie, you need, I'll go fill up your, your uh, car with gas. If you need, you need any cigarettes, how about some cigars? Can I get you a drink? And this is kind of what you see. They're like rock stars in the criminal world. Um, so the mob does maintain that type of aura uh, in the criminal uh, world, and there's a lot of respect that is given to mobsters and those who are part of uh, the families involved. I had some, just a basic question before I ask you specific questions, just for our listeners who are not aware. There are there are five mafia families in New York City. Is that correct? 
That is correct, but they, in the New York City area, there are really seven. Okay, the five families in New York that operate are the Bonanos, the Colombos, the Genovese family, the Gambinos, and the Lucchese. But in Elizabeth, New Jersey, there is a family called the, the Cavalcanti family, um, which is uh, a group of guys in which the Sopranos were type of modeled after. Okay. Right? They're also known as the Elizabeth crew. That's kind of the, the, the group. And then the other one that you have in the New York area is up in northern New Jersey, the Newark area as far as northern, is the Philadelphia family. They have a very big crew operating in that area. So these groups, but keep in mind, the big groups in New York or the number one family is what we refer to as the west side or the Genovese. That's the main group that you have in New York. Then number two is the Gambinos. Now, the Gambinos used to be number one, but for reasons now that the west side has really climbed. So then you have your other groups involved, the Lucchese's, uh, the Bonanos have taken, and the Columbos. I don't know, but what it is, and I'll give you an example. In that family, you have, let's say, the west side of, uh, or the Genovese may have... 250 made men. And then keep in mind that there are so many associates attached to that family. Uh, so that's kind of what makes their power. And the, how they become what they are is how much their ability to make money and how much money they're able to, uh, to break in. Because keep in mind, mobsters, or as they call them, good fellas, right? They must, in order to be one, you must be able to make lots of money. You got to keep your mouth shut. You got to be willing to do jail time, and most important, you got to be capable of violence. Are we looking? So at, all of these guys are involved in that kind of thing. Are we looking at something like two thousand made members in the New York City area, something like that? Well, you figure two fifty. No, because the other families, uh, the. Uh, the Columbos and Bonanos may have, and the Philadelphia may have 30, 40 made guys. So by the time you add up maybe close to 1,000 made guys, maybe 1,500 on a stretch. But these, again, are guys who have undergone the process and the induction ceremony. Okay, these are the guys who have taken the oath. Now, you could still be a member of the mafia, but you could be an associate, which is what I was, a connected guy. As an associate is either a guy who aspires to become a made guy, to go through the induction ceremony, or a guy who maybe just wants to operate under the protection of this brand name, you know? Right. So that, that's kind of how, how it works. So I'm, a fair estimate for me, I would say venture to say maybe 1,500 top made guys, uh, uh, possibly in New York. I would say more so is the 1,000. You know, what I find interesting is you you infiltrated the mafia at a time when it was after 9-11, after obviously all the prosecutions that Giuliani did, after all the RICO prosecutions, which is basically, as I understand RICO, it's like one person who's involved in an organized crime uh, or, or in crime and someone's in a part of that, they're essentially responsible for everything that's occurring that's criminal. Is, is that roughly what, what RICO is, Jack? Well, they have to meet the criteria, and I think there's supposed to be two... Uh, uh, violations of statutes, like one of them, they don't necessarily have to be federal violations. They could also be state, so they could be gambling charges or something. So what happens is 
it's all part of the conspiracy getting those who are involved. So uh, let's say, for instance, you're working in the Gambinos and, and somehow you're tying the family that number one, that they're operating as a family, uh, and then you could take down pretty much the majority of the guys if they have connections or have been involved in it. It's one of the the most significant uh, uh, laws in uh, that are, that is out there. In fact, I personally think that that's one of the reasons that a lot of people have decided to start cooperating because the charges that are involved and the, uh, the penalties range sometimes 30, 40 years. So a lot of these people say to themselves, you know what, I don't know if I really want to be a gangster that much to do 40 years for this so-called uh, criminal society. Exactly. And I would rather just start cooperating. So, so the RICO has been very effective. I think it was passed in the 1970s. And keep in mind, it's always being... Uh, use. It wasn't just used with Giuliani. Giuliani is the one who really brought it to the forefront, and I think it was in the commission case where he went after the targeted all the bosses of the family, and he did a spectacular job. And I, if I recall correctly, he also got the information pretty much from the book from Joe Bonanno. Joe Bonanno wrote a book, and Giuliani used it as saying, okay, well, here in this book, you discuss this family and all of the legal proceeds from it and the acts of it. And that's what was used in the, uh, uh, to, for the RICO statute. And he did it very successfully in the commission case, as well as so many other investigations that have hit these guys with RICO. I'm a, so I, I think I actually read his book. I think he retired to Arizona, and he lived to be in his 90s, that guy, I believe and wrote that book. Right, he did. But if you recall, I think that was the, what Giuliani used, because Giuliani read the book, and he said, well, wait a minute, this is kind of like uh, what I've been looking for. And he was, the, I, if I don't recall, he might have been the first prosecutor to go after uh, the mob using the RICO statute. And he did an excellent job, by the way. So I... I'll turn you back to the book if I could. So when you were t talking about De Palma, I, I think De Palma was an old school mob guy. He he served, I believe when he was in jail, he served, he made meals for John Gotti. He was so in awe of Gotti. He, he kept his mouth shut. He lived by the mob rules. Is that correct? He was sort of an old school gangster? Yeah. Uh, one thing about De Palma, Greg De Palma was always been known as a big money maker, but also besides that, and, and a big earner is kind of the word that they use in the mob. You're an earner. You're somebody who makes a lot of money, but it's also somebody who does what the mob is supposed to do, where the mobsters are supposed to do, and that's kick the money up. The money never flows down. It always flows up. And Greg was very good in playing that. Greg De Palma was one of the part-time, was one of the owners at, over at the Westchester Premier uh, of in Westchester, uh, which at the time, Frank Sinatra played there, Dean Martin played there, Sonny and Cher, and the list goes yes, on and that, on. That famous photo and of, of he and uh, Sinatra in the 70s, I remember that. Right, it was in, in the early 70s. And also, that was the famous photograph that was used against Frank Sinatra, where Frank Sinatra, his arms are draped over Greg De Palma, as well as Carlo Gambino and Paul Castellano, and a slew of other gangsters. 
So that's what always plagued Frank was always, you know, was he a patron saint of the mafia or, you know, what was his involvement here? Because he, you know, uh, repeatedly, uh, vehemently denied any involvement in the mob. But anyway, so Greg De Palma was always kicking money up, which is very good to do in the mob. And I think because of that, he got a lot of pass every time he made a mistake. Because Greg Palmer was always known, even though he was an old school guy, he really, his mind couldn't comprehend the idea of bugging and wiretapping by the FBI. And he always seemed to have gotten snared. And yet, you know, he came out of jail and he went back on the street and back to doing what he does best. And that's making money and kicking money up the ladder. One one of the things in your book which I found interesting, I don't want to say it's funny, but but like the FBI would wasn't they weren't always as supportive of you as they could have been. You talk about like that, there's sort of the tension between people that sit behind a desk and those who are out in the field like yourself, and even like small things like running out of money for the FBI physical, and it was De Palma who arranged for you to see a doctor, which helped you when you had that that heart problem, and it's sort of interesting the lack of support in a way that you have from some of the people at the very top when you were deep undercover well you know it's kind of funny because there are so many eyes and and hands and ears and everything involved in running an investigation but if it's left to the guys on the street you know not only the undercover but the guys who were my handler the guy who was my contact agent the united states attorney's office these are the people who just want, we want to do our job. We're, we're not looking into getting involved in like, hey, you know, this is a great case, but let's end it now so we could appear in front of a, a press conference, so to speak. Right. I, I, it boggles my mind even to this day as to the decision made to end this case. And I tell you that because, number one, my life was never at stake. Even though 60 Minutes where I was on does say that, the fact that I didn't get involved in beating this guy up, that they looked at me differently. Yes, they did, but there was nothing that I could overcome. I mean, when you were in a position, and Joe Stone was in this same position, to have a guy go in and be, go through the process of being inducted, you are now part of that inner circle where in the past, sometimes when I went out there, and let's say two mob guys, especially mob guys from other families, or mob guys that didn't really know who we were, they kind of excuse themselves and they go talk because they're not made guys. They're not part of that society. And one of the basic things that they even do, Ralph, is when they introduce people. So let's say Greg DePalman is with you and I, okay? How it works is uh, him and I are walking, rather, Greg DePalma, and I want to be introduced to you. Now, I know you're a made guy in another family. But I can't go to you and say, hey, Ralph, I'm with the Gambinos. You know, right. how are you doing? You know, we're, we're together. No, that's again because it's a secret criminal society. So then we would have to bring in somebody that knows the both of us. In this case, would be Greg De Palma. So Greg De Palma, for me to meet you, Greg De Palma would have to come in and say, hey, Jack, this is Ralph. He's a friend of ours. Okay, that lets me know that you are one of us. You're a main guy. Right. But if he introduces you as this is Ralph, he's a friend of mine, that tells me that I got to be very careful in what I say around you because you're not one of us. 
And right. they really believe in that, that if you're a made guy, you're only entitled to discuss made business around made men. And, uh, and you so, could have become made, right, Jack? I mean, you were at the point where you could have probably gotten to that point. Yes. I was in the point where I was proposed to get made. The Bureau, that's, I guess, what my frustration was, that I I mentioned that in my book, that I felt short-sighted, the Bureau was short-sighted in not letting me go through this process so I could be part of that meeting. So also, I could also introduce other undercover FBI agents to maybe other families in similar things to take a bigger hit on when we take down the group. That was the same kind of thing that Joe Pistone as well had the issue. They decided to pull the plug. And it's kind of frustrating because when you're out there in the streets and you're working and, and you feel you're making all this progress and you're, sure. you're actually walking among these group of criminals and you have this amazing opportunity and for some reason management decides to pull it, you know, it, it, it's, it's hard. I mean, fortunately for me, unlike Joe, who was just working that case, I had other cases that I was working. So I quickly fell into that and I was involved with it. But I look back with regrets and kind of say, boy, I kind of wish. And when we get together with some of the agents that work this case, we're saying like, you know, why didn't we go through this? Why didn't we pursue? You owe every case I've ever worked is you climb up the ladder. That, that's what cases are. Dope cases, we meet the guy on the street, where he gets it from, where he gets it from, and on and on and on until you don't go anywhere. But here's the situation when we're there and we're going to the next level, why don't we pursue it? So it, it is frustrating. And getting back to what you said as far as the heart issue, is very true. I mean, the Bureau, my birthday's in September, so therefore uh, the money runs out, as we all know, every time we hear about every year. So what happened is I joined the union um, because most of these mobsters, they want to join the union. And it's all, it's no-show jobs. So Greg Obama said, hey, you have any medical health insurance? And I said, no, I don't have any of that because I'm playing a guy on the street. Right. So he said, well, we'll get you in the union. So next thing you know, I'm signed up at a union where I'm getting not only medical coverage, but I'm getting life insurance benefits, I'm getting retirement benefits, and I got health insurance benefits that were better than the FBI benefits. That's that's amazing. They had dental and eyeglasses. You know... I, sorry, I, I just want to say, and, and talking about the, the construction industry, which is the main thing, obviously, for that family, I remember reading Underboss, Sammy the Bull Gravano's book, and he's like, yes. in that book he says, not an ounce of concrete, something like, not an ounce of concrete can be poured in this city without my say-so. He, to paraphrase, he said something like that. And then to read your book and to see that the construction industry still, to this day, was still so much controlled by the mob, do you think it's like that today? Is it still... That, that kind of iron ironclad grip? Yeah, I, I don't think it's to the extreme that it was with the uh, back in, the, say, the 70s and 80s, but you still have a large amount of money. And I remember Greg Palmer telling me that every construction job, there was 2% the mob makes on every construction job, 2%. And how they do that is they have the unions tied up where they go, okay, if you don't cooperate, if you're a contractor, and you don't cooperate, they're going to hold hold off your whole building process. They will start screening every truck that comes in. They'll start measuring the gauging their tire pressure 
They'll look to look at the manifest. They'll inspect the truck. And what's happening while all of this is going on? You're having a backlog of trucks behind you. So you're holding business. So this is kind of how the mob operates. It's kind of they're getting that. And also, one of the things is that once you go on record with being a mobster, if I, if I let's say, for instance, I have a restaurant and, and I'm involved with the business and now I'm using their waste management, okay, I'm using their garbage pickup. Now, if I'm on record with that particular mob group, if I need my linens cleaned, I have to use a guy that's also in the mob uh, as an associate. If I need alcohol, I got other guys, the liquor guy, and all of that. And the reason why there's always the passing of the baton and the recommendation is because keep in mind that all of those other groups are doing what they, the mob, want, and that's kicking up is that's giving money back. Because if they land the contract, then what happens? Then they're making money, they got to kick up. So you see the way it kind of works. So they really believe, like, once you're in bed with these guys, it's going to cost you all around. And you may have somebody who picks up your garbage at a much cheaper rate. But guess what? You're not going to be able to use them. You're going to use the garbage men that they're going to recommend. So roughly, so, uh, uh, like every dollar which comes into say, the Gambino crime family, one of the five families, how much of it would be construction, do you think? 30%, 40%? Is that, a big, is that the biggest part of their income? I would say, well, yes. I would say even a little higher than that. The, the construction companies that are involved and all of the, and again, this doesn't certainly have to even be big jobs. I'm talking about your basic construction still. You know, home rebuilding, modeling, remodeling. There's a lot of that involved with with the mob himself. But the dollar that comes in, I would say close to 60% of it would be solely done right in today's world related with uh, uh, construction. Do you have any guesses? Sorry. Go ahead. What were you going to say? Do you have any guess how much of it is drugs, Jack? Because I know that that's sort of officially a no-no, but they do it anyway. But how much of it is... Well, yeah, they do it, but they do it very carefully. They certainly, uh, you know, they're not going to go out and flaunt it and, and do it. Some of that drug money could be disguised as construction money. You see what I'm saying? Yes. So if I'm out there because I can't come up with any kind of scheme or an angle that I would make money, I, I'm out there hustling, looking to do something. So if I'm selling dope and I come back, I'm not going to go to my boss because you know the rules. You have to kick up. You don't, you don't become a mobster by having a great personality. <laughs> you don't become a mobster because they advertise in the classified section of the New York Times. You do it because you play by their rules. And that rule is, number one, you have to make money and play by the rules of kicking money up. So in this particular case, if I'm out there and I'm not making a dime, I'm going to worry about what my boss is going to say to me. And my captain, right, or my soldier is going to say, hey, what are you, workless? Go out there. you got to make some money. Go for this angle. For that. So you got to show them that you're out there making money. So how do you do that is if you're involved with dope, then when you come back and say, look, i got a scam. Here's the money proceeds from it. As long as they're getting an envelope, hey, you're as good as the last envelope that you gave. They turn a blind eye as long as, as the they money. Turn bl- Absolutely. Now, now, look at the case of Angelo Ruggiero and Gene Gotti and all of that. What happened is that they, uh, Paul Castellano found out that the money that they were operating selling drugs. So he wanted to see those tapes. So 
what, what's going on, if they find out, then you're going to be in problems. Now, Greg De Palma specifically told me, he says, look, are you involved in drugs today? Now, what am I going to say? I'm going to say no, of course. So I said no. He goes, because, uh, he says, well, it's been in the last five years. So I said, no, I haven't touched the stuff. He says, good. We don't want that around us. But I guarantee you, Greg thought that I was a big doper from Florida. Because I had all the, you know, the perks, the, the beautiful Rolex president watch, the four-carat ring, obligatory pinky ring. So, therefore, they claim they don't want any part of that. But it's one of those things you don't go and say, here's an envelope, I sold 50 heat. No, it works more like, hey, I got a score. They don't want to know. It's plausible deniability. Right. That's kind of what it's all about with them. But they're out there. Some of these guys are dealing in dope, of course. Now, you know, it's some way to make money and some way to sustain their power base within the family. But that one of the biggest money makers of all time was a guy that I was out there, and I actually got him a fake television, was a guy named Andy Campos. Andy Campos was part of Richie Martino and Tori Locasio and this big scam that they did uh, in a marketing scheme. They also created these 900 telephone toll-free numbers. They also created in porno sites. They created a bank out in the Midwest, and that money was used to and rerouted to the Gambino crime family. And John Gotti specifically said, don't show up anymore to any weddings or wakes uh, or funerals whatsoever. And they made to the tune, and it's been talked about, of about a billion dollars of this Internet fraud that they committed. Now, for that, I met Andy Campos when he was out there, gave him a TV. They had another investigation on the Gambino crime squad, so we let him go. And Andy Campos was arrested in this fraud, and they got five years. Wow. Now, can you imagine the envelopes that were going to John Gotti and everyone about this huge Internet fraud scheme? I think they pled to something like $600 million. I mean, think about that. And they got five-year penalty out of that. Some people say that the, um, the FBI has been very focused on terrorism and maybe... Some people say that they've lost a little bit of their focus on the mafia. Like the Reagan administration, I believe, had a uh, FBI squad assigned to each of the five families. And I think now they've combined families per FBI squad. And do you think that there's less of a focus on the mafia, that they have a chance now to regrow? Or do you think it's still being... Well, well, Ralph, when I was there, we had actually six families, six squads that handled the families, all five. And then you had another one that dealt with drugs. Okay. Okay with the organized crime, okay? This is not going back to Reagan. I'm talking about when I was out there, and I'm talking about 2002, okay? okay? Now, the thing about it was we also had drug squads. At one time, Miami had like seven drug squads, which consisted of maybe 25 agents and 20 police officers. I know the squad that I worked in New York and Queens, we had 25 FBI agents and 25 NYPD detectives assigned full time to this, okay? Uh, ever since 9-11, things have dwindled down to now there is zero drug cases in the New York office or Miami, okay? And you have, as, as I understand, now there's only two 
organized crime squads, combining all seven of them into two and with very small amount of, uh, uh, of manpower. And the reason for that, I mean, to me, I, I just look at this that, you know, uh, it, it's kind of like the organized crime to me is like a chronic disease. You've got to manage it up and control it. And if not, it is just going to take over you. So what's happening now, in my opinion, because they have been lowered in the investigative priorities of the FBI. I mean, now you have, of course, terrorism. You have cyber. You have national security. You have white-collar crime. You don't even see anywhere organized crime. So what does that tell me from having worked the street for many years? That these guys are rebuilding. They are morphing themselves like they have done in the past. They've learned from prior investigations. They're operating. They're crawling back underneath the rock. And they're building themselves up in number. That's, and sooner or later, five years from now, you're going to see a resurgence of organized crime because no one's really, I mean, yes, we've had some success, but in the past, we had success all the time. We were taking these guys down. That's, um, that's an interesting point. I mean, uh, I, I guess the only way to stop it is to have a renewed focus on it, um, as you would, I guess you would advocate. Well, yeah, we have to always keep it going because, look, these guys, uh, as long as you have bookmaking, which we all know, it's out there everywhere, okay? Bookmaking, all right? Sports betting. Think about that every uh, every Super Bowl. Or just think about it every time, office pools that they have. As long as you have that, as long as you have loan sharking, okay? There are people who utilize loan sharks every day. Uh, as long as you have hijacking, as long as you have narcotics, as long as you have prostitution, as long as you have people who work in the criminal element that work under the brand name of the mob, okay, and as long as you have people that are buying things that fall off the back of a truck, you're going to have the mob. It just makes too much money. So to me, the concept of lowering the amount of uh, attack on them and to have uh, them lessen their investigative priorities become into where they are not being worked on the way it was worked in the old days, I think that's personally a mistake. You know, it, it, okay, how do you solve that? I, I Look, terrorism is number one, in my opinion. I agree with that. But, hey, hire more FBI. Put people, you can't let these mobsters, these criminals, go out there and, and start growing in numbers because they're, they're going to come back and bite you. And the same with drugs. Look at the opiate problem. Well, maybe I attribute that where nobody's working dope anymore. The right. dope problem hasn't gone away. I mean, there's still, you know, all kinds of people utilizing drugs. Where So we, we're doing that because we have, the Bureau has only, you know, a small amount. I think there's only like 13,000 agents throughout the United States working. And we also have a lot of people overseas that are working. But, you know, the fear of, of terrorism, which is rightfully earned and, cybersecurity and political corruption, those are all very important. But what I'm saying is, let's keep pursuing that. Now, I don't know I'm saying that because I'm a criminal-type working agent. You know, I'm a, I'm a guy who's used to work in reactive work, to work bank robberies and all that. You know, that's maybe that's my thing. But I, I really feel the FBI should hire more agents to address these problems that are going to be really, really big in the future. Now, let me just get back to uh, your book as well. Now, as I understand, Steve Soderbergh was going to turn this into a film. Where does that stand, uh, Jack? 
Well, Steven Soderbergh still in Farwood. The film thing is out the window. Um, Steven Soderbergh uh, approached me and he said that he wanted to do an episodic series. So I told him, I said, sounded great. He had a lot of success with the Knicks as well as uh, the Candelabra. So as it stands now is they had a writer who was a nice guy, but he was used to uh, doing films and they wanted somebody to... Uh, with the experience of doing these series, episodic series. So now they're going back to the writing board to try to come up or fine-tune this script and go out and sell it to the network. They're still very excited about it. Uh, it's frustrating for me because it's going on over eight years, but, uh, you know, it is the way. It's always been a hurry-up-and-wait kind of a syndrome. But uh, my hands are, you know, I'm with Steven Soderbergh and... Uh, uh, he's a very talented and very nice man, you know? Yeah, I, I could just see it being an amazing film and so interesting because the book is such an exciting read. I mean, your undercover investigation, your infiltration of the mob. It's a life that obviously, I told you we had Victor Ostrovsky on this show and he um, worked for the Mossad and um, he gave us a feel for what it was like to be in the Mossad and the, even the process of how if they decide to kill someone and then you have an appeal and just sort of a hidden world that most people don't see. And that's obviously what you... Would you represent that, that interesting story? Do you think that um, if you're just going in the future 20, 30, 40 years from now, do you have any guess as to where things would be with the mob, if they'll be stronger or less strong than they are now? Will, will they ever be wiped out, even if there was a renewed focus? No, they, they, I think they're going to be, uh, they're going to grow exponentially in, in numbers. I think uh, they are now doing things a little different. I mean, that I know that they, they have a will uh, deserve reputation for violence uh, in the past, but I think they've learned that leaving bodies on the streets is not good for business. I think they're going to get involved in all money-making uh, ventures uh, as far as internet fraud, as far as, you know, uh, white-collar crime, but uh, the mob will always be around, and I think the fact that we're not looking at them, uh, that what else were they going to do but grow? So I know it's a whole different world. I mean, in the old days, these old mobsters like Greg De Palma and the other ones, the Gattis, and all of these mobsters, the Chin, these are people who did this as a way of life. Now they are approached it more like a business. So when they get caught and they get presented with these RICO statues looking at a really long-term imprisonment, then they make business decisions. And that's usually, hey, you know what? I'm going to cooperate. Is so... That whole idea that it was a way of life, I think, has will change and has already changed. These young Turks now are now involved in this thing. These are guys who, who don't look at this like the way the mob really was intended back in the old, you know, uh, days of, uh, you know, back in the 30s uh, and on. So you're going to see a more sophisticated white-collar crime of mob, which is kind of ironic because... That's what Paul Castellano wanted to do. Right. And he was moving to kind of legitimize the mob, but John Gotti, who was a thug, thought otherwise. Right, but you Paul, know, and, uh, Paul Castellano was, so a, that was, was killed by Gotti, obviously, in front of Sparks Steakhouse, 1985, and then that sort of was the a lot of unwanted attention for that family as Gotti paraded himself around and uh, eventually had his downfall, correct? Absolutely, yes. And one of the things you find in the mob is like a little pecking order. In the mob, there are two types of guys. They're known as either racketeers, 
or right, which is kind of like a sophisticated, you know, uh, a, a kind of sophisticated who makes the kind of money uh, uh, out there in the streets legitimately. He's kind of cautious. And then you have the gangsters. That's the guy who really gets the respect in the mob. That's the guy who's not afraid to go to jail. He's not afraid to hit you with a baseball bat. He's not afraid. When he goes to court, he's going to, even though you got him with a smoking gun, he's going to take you to trial, right? He's not, if he'll never plead guilty because he's not going to have an allocution to him to say that he was involved in a member of the Gambino crime family or any other member because, again, he respects the fact that it's a, uh, a secret criminal society. So you, you, get that a lot with, with with the gangster you a lot of guys will say well he's a stone gangster that's a guy with a lot of respect and fear where paul castellano was looked at as a guy you know who was trying to legitimize the mob but had they listened to him you know i'm sure a lot of these arrests would not have happened and uh uh but he's dead and uh, john Gotti, what did he do he died in jail Right, well, we're running out of time, but I just want to say the book is called Making Jack Falcone, An Undercover FBI Agent Takes Down a Mafia Family. It's obviously a wonderful book, and I was interested to read that Falcone you named after that famous prosecutor in Italy who was, his car was blown up, I think, in the early 90s, and that his deputy, Borsellino, I believe, was also killed, and I believe the airport in Sicily is named after both of them, and you named, uh, obviously, Falcone after, that was interesting, I, I didn't pick that up until after I read it, obviously, in your book, so, but, um, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on, Jack. We've only obviously scratched the surface of both your book and what we could talk about for hours more, but um, I really appreciate your time, and uh, I thank you so much. Thank you for your service to the FBI, and thank you for all the good work you did, and, and thanks so much for coming on the program, Jack. Well, thank you for having me, Ralph. It really was a pleasure, and I wish you all the very best. Uh, Jack Garcia, who was an undercover special agent for the FBI,